Good morning. Uh, my name is Noah, and I get to help us plant churches here at North Wake. That's one of my great joys. Uh, we've been able to uh, plant all, almost a dozen over about a dozen years. Uh, we're in the process of, of doing some more of those. But one of those is uh, uh, Exchange Church in uh, Rollsville, and that's where Larry is this morning. So uh, Larry asked me to fill in for him. Uh, I am very glad to get to do that. Um, I get a really, really, really fun passage of Scripture. I hope that I can serve you well this morning. Uh, if you will, pray for me uh, as I preach. Uh, preaching is always a spiritual struggle. Uh, I experience tons of spiritual warfare when I preach. And so your prayers serve me as I'm preaching to help serve you as you hear. So uh, please pray. So uh, we are in the book of Titus, and thus far, uh, the Apostle Paul has been writing to his apprentice Titus about how to help lead and guide this new church that's having some issues. Uh, there's divisions, there's false teaching, they need good leaders, and they need good members. And so he's encouraging him in both of those things, that he's to establish elders, he's to uh, encourage that, he's to identify people, and then he's also to encourage godly living there. So uh, he does this by giving nearly 60 points of instruction in the first 26 verses. So reading those verses can feel like drinking from a fire hose of do's and don'ts. And Larry last week said that Titus has been a book of lists so far. It really felt like a lot of lists, like do this, don't do that, be this, don't be that. A lot of no-nos and yes-yeses, as he said. And, and I'm sure that many of you have felt quite challenged personally. You know, elders, be above reproach. Older men, be dignified, sound in faith. Younger men, be self-controlled. Older women, be mentoring examples to younger women. Younger women, live in a way that God's word may not be reviled, right? Like, no pressure. Employees, be well-pleasing to their bosses. Not to mention all the instructions to live in happy submission to others while living godly lives. These are hard things. They're heavy things. And, and you've probably asked yourself along the way, how in the world am I supposed to do all of this? And you've probably tried and failed at some level in the past weeks. And it brings up the question, how in the world can people like us live holy lives like Jesus? How can that be expected of us? And then, how can we experience this type of life that Paul is describing, that he's calling us to? And this is precisely what Paul will set out uh, in his focus in our passage this morning. He's going to tell us, how is it, what is the, the power behind living a life like that? How is it that that can be expected of people like us? And so as we jump into that this morning, I'd like for us to pray another short prayer uh, just asking uh, God to come be with us, inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word, to convict us by his word, and then to empower us to live in response to it. So will you do that with me? So, Father, we do pray that by the power of the Spirit and the grace of Christ that you would work in us as we hear the word, that you would lead us to your way and your will. Uh, that you would empower us to live as we ought, you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice, and we would have specific ways to walk out these things that you are speaking to us today through your word. Uh, we anticipate that from you. You tell us that you'll do that, and so we wait on you. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Verse 11 starts this way. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. As I was thinking about this passage, it, uh, it reminded me of an experience I had a few years ago. I walked into my office, and there on my desk was a small box. It was, it was wrapped. And so knowing that uh, good gifts come in small packages, I opened it immediately, and it was a set of Apple AirPods. And I'm like, yes. But I'm also so encouraged that someone would know me well enough to know how much of a blessing that would be to me as a person who listens to a ton of music. I talk on the phone way too much. I live with these things in my ears these days. It's just such a blessing to me. And so I felt really, really, really cared for. But directly after that feeling of encouragement and being cared for was the feeling of curiosity, right? Who would do that? Who would give me such a generous gift? And so thankfully, there was a note attached, and I was able to find out who is this person that loved and cared for me enough to bless me this way. And, and something similar is happening in our passage. We're told in verse 11 that the grace of God has showed up. The grace of God has a, appeared, he says. But we're left hanging a bit on how it is that the grace of God appeared. It's kind of mysterious. How is it that the grace of God showed up? How did it appear? But, but there's a note attached, if you, if you will. So if you look down in verse 13, it says this. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how will the glory of God appear in the future? In God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the same way, the grace of God appeared in the past in a person, Jesus, whose name means salvation. And in verse 13, he's called our Savior, same type of word. And so the grace of God in this verse is, is not some mysterious thing. It's not like an impersonal force or some mystical smoke or some like magical fog that just comes over people. No, the grace of God is a person and his name is Jesus and he showed up. So what was unclear in verse 11 is made clear in verse 13. And the gift in verse 11, it has a note attached in verse 13. So it's clear who, who is the grace of God. How did the grace of God show up? It showed up in Christ. You have to know this, that, that when God wanted to put his merciful disposition towards sin and sinners on display, he did that in Jesus. Jesus is God with flesh on. He is God incarnate, merciful and gracious, and therefore the grace of God showed up in Jesus. The grace of God is a person. And so now that we know who the grace of God is, we can, sit, we can consider why did he appear or why did he show up? And verse 11 tells us, he appeared bringing salvation. And so what you have to know about the word salvation is it's kind of like a, a junk drawer word. I don't mean that negatively. I mean that quite positively. Uh, so at your house, do you have a junk drawer? Yeah. So what's in the junk drawer? A little bit of everything, right? And so the word salvation can kind of be like that. It's kind of an umbrella word. There's lots of things that kind of fall under it. And so things like our need to have the wrath of God removed from us, right? That's an aspect of salvation. Our need to, to stand in a right position before God, you know, propitiation, justification, 
Those fall under that idea of salvation. Also, the idea of being reconciled to God, that we can have a right relationship to him. Also, being redeemed, being bought out of slavery into a life with God. But it also extends into the idea of sanctification, right? That's why the Bible can say that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. It talks like that. So how is that possible? Because there are things that, be, that have been done in the past by Christ's work on the cross that are instantaneous and in a moment that we experience at one time. But there are also other things, sanctification, the process of being made holy or being uh, conformed to the image of Christ, that happens in our real-time experience here. We're being sanctified, right? That's an aspect of us being saved. And in addition, there's this idea of glorification or being glorified in Jesus, right? This full finished work of Jesus that will result in us being completely and totally conformed to the image of Christ and perfected and then living in heaven with him forever, right? That's, that's one of the things we're waiting on. We're waiting to be fully saved, right? That's why the Bible can speak these different ways. And so here salvation, I think, encompasses all of that. It includes all of those glorious and magnificent things. All those ideas are under the umbrella of salvation. So this is a beautiful picture that he's holding out. And so Jesus comes. He is the grace of God in the flesh coming, bringing salvation for whom? It says to all people. And so uh, we should read that to be like uh, many translations will say, like, all mankind. Uh, I think it's uh, easy to, to say something like, all those who are descendants of Adam and Eve, people who are stuck in sin. Jesus brings salvation in response to the needs of fallen humanity. It's in response to that reality. And it's possible that Paul has in view all types of people everywhere. It's a, a rich biblical category that, that Jesus died for all types of people. And then as we think about the book of Titus, he would be saying something like this. All types of people everywhere, even Cretans. Because remember, back in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says that, that Cretans, uh, that one of their, their, uh, their prophets said that they are uh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he says, this is true, right? Not a glowing review, not a great Yelp review of the Isle of Crete, right? But it is true about them. And so Titus is working in a hard context with hard people. He's probably discouraged by these lazy, evil, gluttonous folks that he's living among. And he's calling them to follow Jesus, to have transformed lives. So the encouragement that Jesus showed up to bring salvation for all types of people, even Cretans, is probably timely and purposeful. This reminder may be timely for you also. Jesus showed up bringing salvation, including sanctification, for all people like us, people like you, and people like me. 22 years ago, Jesus showed up in my life, and he took me, and he changed me, and he made me his possession, and he made me really excited about living for his purposes. And if you know my family, that's a big deal. Joiners are like Cretans, right? Like, like, I'm, I'm, you laugh. Uh, you know, never, you know, we say things like, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Um, 
Uh, Larry has been quoted as saying that a redeemed joiner is like a regular sinner. Um, <laughs> we have quite a reputation. Um, I actually learned this year that I might possibly not be a joiner because, like, one of my great-grandparents was illegitimate and should have another name. Like, like we are a dumpster fire, right? Th- that's what we are. So for me personally, um, my first look at porn at 9, my parents divorced at 11, first inappropriate relationship at 12, my first puff at 13, selling by 14, facing the possibility of prison at 15, testifying in a murder trial at 16, dropping out of high school at 17, more drugs and relationships through 18, 19, and 20, and by 21, I had tasted, drank, and touched anything I wanted, but I was crushed and unsatisfied and misguided and inhuman. I wanted to live, but I could not figure out how, and then Jesus showed up. I was gifted a Bible for my 21st birthday. I began to read it. I got to know who Jesus was, and the following year I gave my life to him. Thanksgiving Day 2000. And he has been changing me part by part and layer by layer He made me his possession, and he's made me something new. He's making me something new. Jesus showed up for people like you and I, and your story may be different, but your situation is not. You and I need a savior to rescue you and I from a misguided life and an eternal death. And Jesus came for that exact purpose. That's what he showed up to do. And that purpose is exposed a bit further as we look in verses 12 and 13. It says, training us, Jesus, the grace of God, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just recently, a friend of mine showed up at my house. I walked in. And he looked me up and down and he said, where's the rest of you? He was making reference to my recently removed pandemic pot belly. Uh, I've, I've lost about 25 pounds in the last month, but not without help. Uh, I have a personal trainer and uh, his name is Chip and he is ripped. Like this guy is like, he's a stud. And his job is to make me like him, right? That's what he's doing. He's trying to get me to be something like him. I I doubt that I'll ever be as healthy as he is, this side of heaven, but we're going to give it a go. And so so he calls me. He's training me, right? He calls me three times a week. I have a tracker that I wear when I work out, and it reports to him, right? Right? I have to weigh in once a week and, like, tell this guy, like, what I'm eating and how, when I eat bad, right? There's this strict diet, and, and, and the more I follow it, the healthier I am and the better I feel. He's training me to say no to things that are unhealthy, and he's training me to say yes to things that are good for me. He's training me. He's showing me to not do these things and to do these other things. And this is much like how Jesus, the grace of God, is training his people. He's guiding them. He's teaching them. He's showing them to be people who do a handful of things. First, it says that we renounce, right? Renounce ungodliness, and worldly passages. And so this idea of renouncing is to, to forsake or to, uh, to be estranged from something. Like to be divorced from 
It has like a, a relational element to it. And so Jesus is training us to unfriend ungodliness, to divorce ourselves from being unlike him. Jesus is leading us to uncouple ourselves from worldly passions, lusts, and desires. Paul has great, uh, gone to great lengths to explain what those are already in the, in the book, right? The list of do's and don'ts and yeses and no's. Like, we know what those are. We've already been told what those are. But here we're being told, how, how does that actually happen? It happens through training, being trained by Jesus. He's training us to say no, but he's also training us to say yes. He's training us to live. So not just renounce, not just put off, but to put on and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this world, right? Where we live right now on the Isle of Crete for Titus and his people, right? But for us living in this world with the juices that we're soaking in. So how do we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age? Self-control seems to kind of be the secret sauce uh, to all of this. It stands in the middle. If you'll notice, there kind of is a structure where you have two things, one thing, and then two things, highlighting the thing in the middle. Uh, the word self-control is used five times in this book alone. Paul uses it at least 16 times throughout his other letters. And it's used in reference to what elders do, what older women do, what younger women do, what older men do, and what younger men do. He's saying self-control is for everybody. It is the Christian life. In fact, it's the sole instruction for what younger men are to do. He urges them to simply be self-controlled. That's a mouthful. Like when I think about teaching young men something, I would add other things. It must, there must be a lot there because he says to young men, be self-controlled. And so self-control has the idea of a soundness of mind that affects our decision-making. Soundness of mind that affects our decision-making. The power and ability to say yes to what is good and no to what is wrong. Training, right? Saying yes to what is good and no to what is wrong. And that's exactly what he's just told us to do. Renounce these things. Live these things. And so self-control stands in the middle, giving us an idea of how do I do that. I do that through a sound mind. We get a, okay, this word's kind of tragic, right? Because it's self-control, right? What's the problem with the idea of self-control? Like that word self sounds like self-help, like you do it, right? That's quite discouraging. Yeah, you need to control yourself. You do it. It's all on you. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's how it sounds. Like just take control of yourself, right? Like stop it. I don't know if you've seen that video, but... <laughs> Stop it, right? You just do what you're supposed to do. But that's not at all what's happening here. If you think back to passages like uh, Galatians 5, uh, verses 22 through 24, it says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Same idea as worldly passions. And so self-control is a aspect of the fruit of the spirit, right? So, so is self-control something that I do or something that the Holy Spirit gives me, right? You see the conundrum there? But the reality is it's both. Self-control is the way that we participate in the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in us. 
Paul will, will use the language of walk by the Spirit or walk in the Spirit up above this section in Galatians. It really means kind of walk in and by the power of the Spirit. It's both and, in and by, right? By the Spirit and you walk in it. So we participate with what is happening, what God is doing in us. Self-control, right? A sound mind that allows me to make good decisions, saying yes and saying no. So how is it that I live an upright and godly life? Right? I'm trained by Jesus. Right? He is an upright and godly life. He is the epitome of godliness. He's the epitome of uprightness. He's training me to do that. I engage with that through self-control, saying yes to some things, no to other things. That's what's being said to us here. We see that this idea of, of, of uprightness is in contradiction to worldly passions. We can see that the idea of living a godly life is in, in contradiction to living an ungodly life. And what we have to know is that the substance of that is in the person of Jesus. He is training us. Salvation from sin and death is not the sum total of what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to save us in some general sense from sin and death. No, he came to bring salvation to a daily life of living like his life, to live like him, being conformed to Christ's likeness. It's one of the many layered purposes of salvation. And verse 13 adds to that kind of layered purpose all the things that Jesus came to do. And it says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, so if the word glory was a sound effect, what would it be? How would it sound? Oh, right? Like, that's how we think of this word. We, we, we see this word and we think, oh, like, why do we do that? I don't know if, I mean, I do. But that's not what it's talking about. Glory is not a sound. It's a person, right? And so the Bible makes it very clear to us that the glory of God is a person. And so how does the glory of God appear? It appears in a person, and his name is Jesus. Much like verse 11. If you were to look in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse, verse, verse 3, it would say that, that Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The glory of an invisible God made visible in the person of Jesus. And so as we think about this verse, I, I want to... I want to help you see that it carries two ideas. So we wait with the anticipation that Jesus will show up, right? And that Jesus being revealed, showing up in glory, will, fully, will finally and fully show and reveal the glory of God, who God is, that he will be shown for who he really is, much like the transfiguration on the mountain, when Jesus was kind of revealed and transformed and he you know, shined like a bright light. They were able to see who he really, really was. So that's an aspect of Jesus coming and his glory being revealed. But secondly, I think there's an aspect of our glorification in view here. So he comes showing and revealing, but he also comes to finish the work that he started. Right? You remember we talked about sanctification, glorification, right? that there's something that will happen in us. I believe that's a little bit of what's going on here. So if you look at a passage like Romans 8, 29 to 30, it says this, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, sanctification, right, being conformed to the image of Christ, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? There's a work that Jesus has done that encompasses all those things, as we talked about before. And a piece of that is being glorified. And if you were to do a deep dive in the book of Romans, an aspect of that would be getting a new body. Right? If you look in uh, uh, you know, Paul's letters to the Corinthians, right? that there's this new body, like, a, like an incorruptible body. Right? A body that can't sin. We have to get one of those. And so that's an aspect of, of being glorified in Christ, being made new, recreated in Christ to live with him forever. And so we are waiting with hope that Jesus not only will just show up, but he'll show up and finish the work that he started. Right? I can get really excited about that. A lot of the time, the idea that Jesus is coming back is only couched in terms of you should be really scared. But we should be really hopeful. It says that he is our blessed hope. Why should I be hopeful about Jesus coming back? Because everybody will get to see who he really is and he will finish the work that he started in me. Praise Jesus, right? Doesn't that get you excited? Doesn't that make you want to like wait with anticipation? This is what Paul is talking about. So Jesus is training us to say no, to renounce. He's training us to live, to say yes. And he's training us to wait so we expect Jesus to finish the work he started. And so let me ask you, who is your personal tra trainer? Not, not Chip, right? Who is your personal trainer? Who has your ear? Who is training you in the yes yeses and the no no's? Right? Who's teaching you how to live these days? What podcasts are you listening to? How, how much influence do they have over you? What outlets are you listening to? Who do you follow on social media? Who are your nearest friends? Who's discipling you? Who's training you? And better yet, who's training us? Who's our personal trainer for the church? Right? Who's training us? Who's training this body of believers? What image are we being conformed to? Right? Are we being conformed to the image of, of our denomination? Or our commander-in-chief? Or Pastor Larry? No! Pastor Larry is not the image that we're being conformed to, nor is it me. It is Jesus. He is our trainer, and we should look like him as individuals and as a body. So who's training us? Who's training you? Look in verse 14. It goes on to say that, that Jesus... Our Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So at my house, we have a new thing going on. Uh, we have a new driver. Um, I have a 16-year-old who drives a car, and like my other kids ride in it with them. It's terrifying. Um, I don't know if you've had that experience, but... but my, my, my new driver, my oldest son, he's a fantastic driver, I, but it is quite terrifying. But one of the cool things about having a driver is that they can go to the store for you, right? 
You give them a list, they go to the store, they fill up the cart, and they bring the things back home. It's amazing. It's like having shipped, but way more expensive. So, many times, uh, thus far, I mean, Steph and I are like sending him to the store all the time. He's like, really, is this all I do? But a handful of times we've, se we've sent him and we've not sent him with money. And so he gets there and he's like, okay, I got the list, but I got no money. Like, I have no power to get the things you want me to get to the house. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Titus. The list of things that we're asked to do cannot be disconnected from the power to get them, the purchasing power for those things. And so if I want my son to buy the things, I have to put money on his card for him to actually purchase them and get them home. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died to purchase our holiness and godliness in our actual real lives. He died to do that. He is the purchasing power. So as we answer the question of how am I going to do all this? You're not going to do all this. Jesus already did it. And then he wants to live and train inside of you. And you participate with him and he does it in you. Right? He has the power. He purchased all of this. He is the one that paid for it. So how did he pay for that? It says that he redeemed us from all lawlessness. And this word redeemed means to like buy out of. But what's the currency of this redemption? What does the passage say? What did he use to buy this freedom? Himself. How much is that worth? There is nothing more valuable than what he gave to ensure and guarantee our godly lives. His very life. His life for our lives so that we could have his life now and forever. That's what he died for. And so what is the purpose of this redemption? It says that he bought us out of slavery, slavery to sin. That's what this word lawlessness is really all about. It's a uh, living contrary to who God is, living in sin, living you know, in ungodliness or worldly passions, as was said before. But when he bought us out of that slavery to sin, he bought us into something else. He bought us in to a new reality. And so what is that reality that he buys us into? Well, one aspect of it is purification. Now, let me tell you, purification is not just an essential oil, right? It is something else. Purification is the work that Jesus did on the cross. If you were to look in the book of Hebrews, uh, you see that. Purification is the work that Jesus did to, to cleanse our consciences. He does a work on the cross that cleanses our consciences from the things that we did in the past. And so you might ask me, Noah, how can you stand up here and say the things that you're saying being the dumpster fire of a person that you have been in the past because my conscience is clean? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus paid it all, past, present, and future. And that cleanses my conscience. I don't have to dwell on those things and I don't have to live in those things. I've been freed from slavery to sin. 
and my conscience has been purified. Our conscience, as a people, he's cleaned us up, right? He's freed us from sin and lawlessness. He's purified us. It also says that we are his possession and that that's an identity for us. We are not defined by what we own, but by who owns us. Let me say that again. We're not defined by what we own, but rather who owns us. Americans love to define themselves by the stuff they have, right? We all do it. The clothes we wear, the rings we wear, the cars we drive, the homes that we own, all the things. Even, even saying, I have a job. You don't have a job. A job has you, right? We define ourselves by that stuff. But this says, no, no, no. We are owned by Christ. We are his possession, a people from all types of people, even Cretans, people like us. All types of people being made into a single people. And those people are free from sin. He bought us out of slavery into freedom so that we can be free slaves of Christ. Free slaves of Christ. That we're free from sin, bought into slavery to Christ. And now we have the ability to say yes to some things and no to other things. That's why you struggle. right? Someone told you at some point that when you became a Christian, you weren't going to struggle anymore. And they lied to you right? We struggle. You know why we struggle? Because we've been freed into the struggle, right? Yes, sometimes, and no, sometimes, and good, sometimes, and bad, sometimes, but praise be to Christ that one day I'm going to get a new body, and all that's going to change, and I'm going to live in heaven with Jesus, and there's going to be no sin. I'm waiting to be saved fully, but I'm being saved right now in sanctification, and I have been saved in what Jesus did, right? This is all the stuff that Paul's got in mind here. And he died to zealify us, to make us zealous, to make us zealous people. Not people zealous with worldly passions, but zealous for good works. People passionate about living a godly life, a Christly life, Christly passions. Uh, this weekend, I had the privilege of teaching this section of Titus to a group of teenagers from a church in Lincolnton. Uh, actually, a church where Keverly uh, Dyson and her family have uh, been for a while. Uh, when we got to the end, I asked the students what they had learned, what they'd been learning. And one young lady, um, she kind of piped up and, and she said, uh, you're, you're freaking me out right now. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and she started to weep. And she said, you're, you're freaking me out right now because I don't want to be owned by anyone that makes me feel really afraid, she said. And in front of everybody, weeping, she's explaining how crushing that feels to her, to be owned by Jesus, to be his possession. But then she said, but then when I think about how Jesus was willing to give himself so that he could own me, it humbles me. And so I knelt down and I, and I looked her in the eyes and I told her, we all feel this way. We're all scared. But you're just brave enough to say it out loud. I told her, you can trust him. He's good. He loves you. He loves you so much that he would trade his life so that you could have life in him. And church, I want you to know this. I know you're afraid of what it means to be owned by Jesus. I know that. 
We live lives every day that prove that, that there are aspects that we don't want to give to him. But I want to tell you that he's good and you can trust him. He went first. He took all the risk. And he will keep you near him. And he will make you like him. And he died and raised again to guarantee that reality, that you would be like him. And so we can say that the gospel of grace, what Jesus did, it covers the whole gambit of salvation. All the things, past, present, and future, that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And I want to challenge you. Do you believe that Jesus died to make you like him? Not just to be with him, but to be like him day to day. Does that excite you? If it doesn't, I would challenge you that you don't know who Jesus really is. He's amazing. And if you will get to know him through his word, following him throughout his word, he will create in you a passion to be like him. And then he will give you the grace to do that. He will train you to be that. And so the Apostle Paul tells all these things to Titus. And then he says this really interesting statement in verse 15. Look with me. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And it seems like a real shift kind of, right? But I think he's saying something like this. And I want to leave you with this. Declare these things because they are good. These are good things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority because Christ died to make us holy like him. Right? Insist on these things. Tell these things to people even though they don't want to hear it. Tell these things to Cretans even though they might disregard you. And then he says, let no one disregard you because these things are true. These are true things. Don't let the fact that people disagree with you dissuade you from this reality. These are true things. And so as we close, uh, the, the words of, of thank you God for saving me uh, and the way that it communicates just were ringing in my ears. Is that your song, right? Do you, do you sing that? Or have you gotten over that a little bit? I think as we stare into uh, or drink from the fire hose of Titus and all that it asks us to do, we're left with only one conclusion, and that's, man, I really need Jesus to do this work in me. I, I hope that's where you're left. And the good news is this. He did all the work, and he paid it all, and he purchased it all for you. And now, you get to walk in it. So, through self-control, participate in what he's doing. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you, would add, you uh, on our behalf, standing in heaven, would ask of the Father, uh, Jesus, you would ask of the Father that uh, this grace would be ours by the Spirit. And we know that that's your will, and so we know that you will give that to us. You know, we know that you will empower us. You will train us. And so as we are being trained, we wait for your next appearing that will be a beautiful and glorious day showing who you fully and truly are and making us fully and truly who you intended us to be. And so we wait with, with bated breath for that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.